morning. We are continuing our way through the Gospel of Mark this morning, but we're also beginning a new mini-series which we've called The Visitation. Um, And, you know, when we use the word in English to visit, uh, we generally think of stopping by having a cup of coffee, checking in with a friend, etc. But the word that this series title comes from comes from uh, actually the Gospel of Luke. Uh, When Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and he's actually weeping and he's weeping because Israel did not know the day of their visitation. He's talking about his own entrance into Jerusalem and he calls it a visitation. He doesn't mean there that he was just stopping by for conversation. The word uh, that's used there in the Greek is speaking of the type of visit that changes your life. In fact, it's speaking of a visit for the sake of deliverance. A visitation is when a hero swoops in and saves the day. That's what the word actually means. What's striking about Mark's portrayal uh, is here is Israel's awaited reality of the coming Messiah, and yet it looks different than expected. And so we're going to uh, look at this visitation, if you will. We're going to look at this understanding of Jesus as the Messiah, um, and uh, we're going to do so for the next three weeks. Now, if you have a Bible this morning, please open it up to Mark chapter 11. If you didn't bring a Bible and you need one this morning, right in the back of the pew in front of you, uh, you will find one, and you can use the index at the front to find the New Testament book of the Gospel of Mark, and we're in chapter 11. We're picking up here in verse 1, and today we'll be looking at the first 11 verses. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that had cut from, been cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, it was already late. He went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Father, this moment in the gospel, this moment in the scriptures is a moment of deep anticipation, Lord. It's something that has been longed for and looked for and waited upon, and here it's finally come, the arrival of the Messiah. I pray as we look at it, Lord, we would be able to see uh, with uh, fresh eyes and open hearts, uh, and that we would understand better through this both through what's clear and through what's confusing, that we would understand better who Jesus is, not just 
for the Jews, not just in the first century, Lord, but for us today. We pray this in your name. Amen. There's a good deal of expectation that leads us to this place in Mark chapter 11. In fact, the entire gospel has been moving towards this direction, and especially the long section we've just come out of, where Jesus three times has reminded his disciples on the way where they're going. I am going to Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem. We're going to Jerusalem. He's made this point over and over again. And those who are closest to him understand that, uh, that this story doesn't begin at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. It doesn't begin with the baptism of Jesus, but it rolls back over the pages of Scripture deep into the Old Testament. We need to recognize that what's happening here is not a brand new thing, not a beginning as much as it is a culmination. In fact, this is a relatively unique place in Jesus' ministry because what Jesus does here fulfills Old Testament expectations. But this is one of the only places I know of where Jesus intentionally fulfills Old Testament expectations. Okay, so you can make a one-to-one comparison between prophecies in the Old Testament and the way Jesus lived, but here he leans into the driver's seat and says, I want to say something, and he says it in the words of the Old Testament. He says it in the expectation of Israel. Okay, now, um, what I'm suggesting to you is that uh, this day is on Israel's national calendar. It's one that they've been waiting for, longing for. If you read the Psalms, the Psalms pray for this day to come. It's one that they were looking for. Isaiah encourages Israel to set watchmen upon the walls to look for this exact happening. It's all been prepared and waiting. And ultimately, it is the coming of the Messiah. Now, the word Messiah just means the anointed one, the chosen one, the one that I've selected. But ultimately, the Messiah was uh, the one whom God would, uh, had promised that would fulfill all the promises. The one who God would send who would fulfill all the expectations of Israel all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when things first go wrong. God suggests that he's going to send someone to set it right. And then later, as we'll see this morning, in Genesis 49, as Jacob is talking to his sons and speaking about the future of their descendants, when he addresses the tribe of Judah, he speaks of this moment, of this coming, of this Messiah. When we get into Isaiah and Ezekiel, when we look at Zechariah, when we look at the entire Old Testament, especially the prophets, The prophets have two statements that they make throughout the Old Testament. One is, remember the covenant, look back. And the other one is, he is coming, look forward. But right here in Mark chapter 11, the summary is, he is here. It's the arrival. It's Jesus showing up. Now, I want you to notice that uh, what happens here is royal in nature. We're going to look at the Messiah from a couple of different angles We're going to see how revolutionary the Messiah was next week. Uh, We're going to look at the rejection of the Messiah next week. But this is the one portion that Israel should have understood up front. You may have uh, noticed here that David is evoked in the mouths of the people. 
As they see this going on, they speak of our father, David. If you were with us last week, uh, Blind Bart's expression of who Jesus was was son of David. Okay? The expectation that Israel had for a Messiah was also and always an expectation for a king. Okay? And what happens here is kingly. But if we just try and understand it on its own, stripped from the Gospel of Mark, stripped from the Old Testament, we won't actually get what's going on. In fact, I can show that to you very quickly because just look at the opening verses. Unique in the Gospel of Mark, uh, Jesus sends out his disciples here to find him an animal to ride upon. Okay? And this is as he's coming in, the, the long journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, most of the ground has already been covered. In fact, the hardest part of the road, he's just finally cleared the road between Jericho and Bethany. Okay, this is, this is just a single slope that comes like this into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. It's, it's relatively minor. It's less than a mile. Okay. And yet Jesus makes a big deal about getting this colt, and he says, go get it. I've made arrangements. It's all set up. I have need of it. Why? You see, reading this as it is, we may not get it, but again, Jesus is expressing a surprising amount of intentionality here. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose. Okay. And so, to understand that, we need to go backwards. And I want to look at two passages very quickly to help us understand this. The first one, like I mentioned, is in the first book of your Bibles, the book of Genesis, at the very end of the book of Genesis in chapter 49. As I mentioned earlier, in this passage, Jacob is giving a blessing to his 12 sons. And as he does so, he begins to prophetically speak of the future of each of the tribes of Israel. Now, one of the things that we don't always remember is the context of these blessings. This is basically the culmination of the story of Joseph. You know, the Joseph who's condemned and sold by his brothers into slavery. The Joseph who's falsely accused and finds himself in prison. The Joseph who's exalted uh, because he ha and can interpret the dreams of Pharaoh and through that understanding brings about salvation, not just for Egypt, but for his own brothers. Okay, this is the culmination of that story. And here's what's striking, okay? Joseph has two sons who become tribes of Israel, Manasseh and Ephraim. Joseph's whole journey begins with a particular dream, right, of all of his brothers and his mother and father, just like the sun, moon, and stars, bowing down to him. But what's striking about this prophecy here is it takes that dream and the bowing down and it applies it not to the descendants of Joseph, but to the descendants of Judah, okay? And notice the language that it does so. This is Genesis 49. And specifically here we're in verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. That's the language of the dream that Joseph has. Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. That's the other dream that Joseph has. Okay. In other words... Jacob somehow understands that Joseph isn't really about Joseph. That somehow it's a personification, a picture, a forward-looking prophecy of something else that's to come, and it won't come from the line of Joseph, but from the line of Judah. And then notice this, verse 9, 
Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. Now, your translation may say there, until Shiloh comes. I would suggest, actually, that the best reading of this is until the one whose right it is comes. In other words, literally what's being said here is that Judah's going to have a place in ruling over Israel until the one who all the rule was waiting for comes. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, if you're familiar with uh, Christianity, you may even recognize Shiloh as a messianic title. The Jews read this passage and they went, all right, we're waiting for Shiloh. We're waiting for the one who has the right to rule. And then notice one last thing here. It says, and to him shall be obedience of the people, binding the foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. Okay, now truth be told, when you read that verse on its own, it's a little bit hard to understand. I mean, was it suggesting here just that the Messiah will have a strange proclivity to tie his animal to grapevines instead of hitching posts? Okay. Even the Jews have always struggled with what this means. Okay. But notice it talks about a donkey cult. And it ties it to this coming of the Messiah. And that's not the only place. The other place that's evoked by what happens in Mark 11 is in Zechariah. Now, Zechariah is at the absolute opposite end of Israel's history. The days of Joseph is the very beginning of the 12 tribes. The days of Zechariah is the very end of Old Testament history. But here in Zechariah chapter 9, which is the second to last book of your Old Testament, if you have a hard time finding it, remember that at this point, Unlike where we were in Genesis, the understanding of who the Messiah is has been tremendously built up by other authors, right? Books and books between Genesis and Zechariah, thousands of years of history, and also a good deal of prophecies rounding this out. And yet notice what is said here, verse 9 of chapter 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river, that's the Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. Okay, and so here is this promise It's a litmus test, if you will. How will we know when the Messiah arrives in Jerusalem? Because he will come in righteousness, yes, but he will come mounted on the colt of a donkey. So here we have two messianic passages that double down on uh, riding a donkey into Jerusalem. And if you look in the Old Testament, riding a donkey is not that uncommon, even for leaders. That was Samuel's preferred mount as he was judge over Israel as it was for his sons. There is some things being conveyed here, some imagery that's important in the mount. But again, what I want you to notice is that when we get back to Mark chapter 11, this is not something that randomly happens. 
right? Jesus isn't marching into Jerusalem and somebody says, hey, Jesus, would you like to ride my donkey? This is something that Jesus intentionally arranges. Okay. Now, this is striking for another reason. If you've been studying the Gospel of Mark with us, you know that Jesus has been distancing himself from the expectations of the people. He's told the few people who know for sure that he really is the Christ, the Messiah. That's the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. He says, don't tell anyone. Even when he does the miraculous and the healing, he's always escaping from the crowds. He's moving away. And here he makes very and pointedly visible, this is who I am. Hey, Jerusalem, wake up. Look, I've arrived. Okay. It's visible and it's intentional. Jesus here is stating symbolically that, and publicly that he is the Messiah. Okay. Now, one other thing. When Jesus is crucified in just a few chapters, what is his primary crime in the eyes of the Jew? That he sought to make himself king. When? When does Jesus stand up in the crowds and say, I am the king of Israel, here? The accusation comes from here. They recognize this for what it is. The crowds, when they see this, begin to rejoice in the words of Psalm 118. A celebration of the arrival of the Messiah. Okay. It is intentional. And here's something that I think we need to wrestle with this morning. And that's simply this, that Jesus claims proactively, intentionally, with forethought and planning to be the king. That's what he's saying. I'm the king. And did you notice what it said in Zechariah? Not just the king of the Jews. His rule will extend across all the nations from the, rivers of the uh, river Euphrates to the ends of the earth. In other words, by Jesus mounting this donkey, he says, I am your king. All of us. He is the king, which is what the promises of the Messiah continuously point to. And it's not just Zechariah. And it's not just Genesis 49 that says the whole world is effectively waiting for the right one to rule, the one who deserves it, the one to whom rule belongs. The whole Old Testament is full of this understanding. In fact, the biggest one is in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a vision of the Son of Man who receives all the kingdoms of the earth directly from the Ancient of Days. And that, of course, is Jesus' favorite title for himself. But here he gets outright explicit. And he says, find me a donkey. I have a point to make. Okay. Now, I think there's another thing we need to ask here, which is, okay, fine, Jesus rides a donkey into Jerusalem fulfilling prophecy intentionally. But also, notice how much time Mark spends on the getting of this donkey. Look, look with me again at verse, uh, verse 2. He said to two of his disciples, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. 
And then Mark feels the need to tell us the rest of the story, even though it's word for word what Jesus said would happen. Verse 4, and they went away and found a colt tied at the door outside of the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there did say to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said to them, and they let them go. Why is Mark so obsessed with the details of this story? Now, one thing I would suggest, and it's pretty evident here, again, is Jesus' intention. Okay? At the very least, this is a pre-arranged deal. Jesus has called ahead and reserved a donkey, right? But it doesn't really read like a very well-set-up donkey rental organization, does it? They're surprised by the request. Jesus assures that the donkey is going to be returned. Right? The people who see them untying the donkey, even, rem- even though, remember, these are the usual suspects. These are two of Jesus' disciples. These are well-known partners of Jesus. I would suggest to you, ultimately, what we see here is an expression of authority. Maybe it even suggests a significant amount of foreknowledge Jesus knows the donkey's going to be there. He knows that he can lay claim to it. Maybe, at the very least, the very least it shows authority. In fact, notice the words that they're supposed to give to it make an excuse for just randomly walking up and taking someone else's donkey. The Lord has need of it. And they go, oh, okay. Right? See, this is the thing. I think Mark doubles down on this short passage here and tells it to us twice because it's directly tied to the whole point and purpose of this passage, which is Jesus as king. If Jesus is who he identifies himself to be here, then that donkey is his. It belongs to him. He is the Lord. Everything anywhere that is owned is owned as a gift from or even as a stewardship of Jesus. Because the world was created by Jesus, Colossians tells us, and for Jesus. Okay? Every authority structure, every power and principality, every government, every position of leadership, all of it belongs to Jesus. And so he comes here and he sets up this plan to take the donkey. And he needs it. And he asks for it but he does it with full, comprehensive authority. And see, the thing is, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on this donkey, he is summoning total and complete allegiance. In other words, if Jesus was here right now, and he came up and wanted to commandeer your car, he has the full authority to do so. And it's not just for donkey equivalents, like our particular vehicle, okay? The reality, again, that Jesus claims by being king is that it's all his, that we are all his subjects, that we are all his citizens. Everything you have, everything you are, Everything you experience, every place that you go, every structure and institution you find yourself in, all of it belongs to Jesus. Abraham Cooper said this, 
He said, there's not a single square inch in all the universe that Jesus can't lay his finger on and say, mine. The authority that Jesus claims here is total. Now that's important because there are a lot of other things that Jesus is. There are a lot of other places that people can look at Jesus and see his identity. Okay, And so it has become uh, common even in our day to see Jesus as, for example, a freedom fighter. Someone who stood up for the poor. Someone who resisted oppression. And all of that is clearly true. As we will see tomorrow, Jesus is interested in those things. But sooner or later, each and every one of us has to face this one primary place where Jesus says, if you want to know who I am, I will show you. And intentionally takes an Old Testament statement about how to recognize the Messiah and says, this is who I am. The only way to recognize who Jesus is, and not recognize like, oh, look, that must be Jesus, but actually treat Jesus as he is. The only way, the most comprehensive way, the total way, is as King of Kings and of, as Lord of Lords. Now the honest truth is, we don't always like that. We would like the fringe benefits of a relationship with Jesus, but we'd like to reserve control. We'd like some sort of quid pro quo relationship with Jesus where we go, I will do these things for you, Jesus, and here are the things that I need from you that I can't do for myself. But when Jesus mounts this cult and publicly makes a statement, the statement he makes is, I am the awaited king. Now, as we see as Jesus mounts this donkey and rides him in, there's one other thing that's worth pointing out here. Mark also emphasizes there in verse 2, he says, immediately as you enter, you'll find a cult tide on which no one has ever sat. Okay. Now, that may just be a statement of reserved, right? This donkey's destiny is bound up in what's about to happen. It's not been ridden all over the place by all sorts of people. But there's also another part of this, which is this means that this is an untamed donkey. Okay. He's not been broken. He's never been saddled. He's not used to the, to the reality of a human being climbing on its back and using it for transportation. But there is a full and utter surrender here to the role. We don't see this donkey putting up a fight. And remember, donkeys are proverbially stubborn, right? Again, we see a demonstration of this. In fact, it's one of the criticisms that God constantly makes of Israel in the Old Testament is that all of nature understands who God is in their life except for his own people. Nature submits and surrenders and recognizes God's authority. And don't we see that throughout Jesus' life? Wasn't it in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is in the midst of a terrible storm that's so bad that his hardened lifetime fishermen friends are freaking out about the danger of drowning? And he stands up and he rebukes the storm and it goes calm. 
Nature recognizes this authority. To some degree, though, so do the crowds. Look at what happens in verse 7. So now he's mounted on this donkey and he's riding down the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem, verse 7. They brought the colt to Jesus and they threw their cloaks on it and he sat on it and many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Now, what's going on here? This is the equivalent of rolling out the red carpet pre-red carpet, right? The idea here of them taking the clothing off their backs and laying it in front of a donkey so that the donkey can go over it is clearly overkill, as red carpet always is, right? Uh, in fact, it's, it's a surprising statement of worth. I don't know how you feel about your own clothing, but when have you ever even considered valuing someone so significantly you're like, oh yeah, trample, trample my clothes, please. Other people are taking palm fronds and they're making this, you know, kind of green carpet, if you will, laying out before them, okay? It is a royal procession a recognized one. People are participants, not just observance in this. In fact, notice verse 9, those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna. Now, Hosanna means save now. But when it's used in Psalm 118, it's not used in a psalm of desperation. Like, that's how bad things are. You've got to save now or there won't be anything worth saving. Hosanna is a celebration of salvation even though it's a remembrance of that salvation by calling out for it. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessing is the coming kingdom of our father David. What does Jesus preach throughout the Gospels? The kingdom, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. Here they respond to that and they say, Hosanna in the highest, which is just a superlative. They're not saying that's how bad we really need to be saved, but this is the salvation with a capital S, the one we've been awaiting for, the one that's finally arrived. They get it. Now, we need to counterbalance that, and we will in just a second. But the point is here, people recognize what's going on. In fact, Matthew tells us that the religious leaders, the ones who have been in such opposition against Jesus, the ones who will plot his death, they get involved with this. They see the people praising Jesus in this way, and they go, Jesus, quiet your disciples. This is blasphemous. And he says, if you quieted them, even the rocks would cry out. The reality will be proclaimed, but it's visibly and tangibly understood for what it is. Okay. Jesus is king, and I have to ask each and every one of you this morning, have you recognized? Have you dealt with? Have you reorganized your life? Have you interpreted the flow chart of your life around this reality that Jesus is king? Because if you haven't, then you don't know Jesus. He requires full and total allegiance. He demonstrates complete and utter authority. He demands the decision-making role in your life. He demands that you be open-handed in every item you own and every ambition you have. 
Jesus here identifies himself as the inheritor of all things. However, Jesus also makes a surprising statement about the type of king he is here. There's quite a few things here that don't really line up. In fact, some of them require a little bit of clarification. First off, who is this crowd who's rejoicing and praising Jesus? There's a tendency to juxtapose this amazing reception of Jesus with the full-throated condemnation of Jesus, crucify him from a crowd just one week from now, just five days after this. And so sometimes commentators and preachers will say, how fickle the people who would praise him, Hosanna in the highest, and condemn him, crucify him. But, But this crowd is not the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This crowd is not the religious leaders of Israel. This crowd is the pilgrims of Galilee that Jesus has been traveling with for the sake of getting to Passover the entire last four chapters. These are people who know Jesus. These are the followers of Jesus. You want to know who's grabbed a palm frond and saying Hosanna in the highest? Blind Bartimaeus, who joined him at Jericho and got on the road to follow him. These are Jesus' disciples, which, let me remind you, are a ragtag bunch of Galileans who have a hayseed accent that's recognizable, right? That's what happens to Peter when he's warming his hands at the fire. They go, wait a minute, you're a Galilean like him, right? They can tell by the way they talk they don't belong. They're, you know, the, the poor, the lame, the blind. They're these people who have become followers of Jesus. They're the disenfranchised. They're the, uh, the fringe people. Now, I would imagine the heading of your Bible there says the triumphal entry. Okay. Do you know where we get that language from? It's especially significant to think about a triumphal entry in the Gospel of Mark. Because triumphal entry is a Roman idea. Mark's audience is a church in Rome, made up of Roman citizens. Here's what a triumphal entry was in the first century. If you were a general in the Roman army, and you went to war, and you had such a significant victory that at least five thousands of your opponents lay dead, then they would receive you with a parade and a celebration. They would, you would come into town mounted on your war horse, surrounded by your soldiers with the prisoners of war in tow. The crowds would be gathered and they would celebrate. That is a triumphal entry. It's different here. It's different in the fact that the crowd, again, is just a ragtag bunch of people. And if you follow into the New Testament, Paul leans into this moment in time and the correlation to the triumphal entry And he talks about himself and he says, if you want to know where Christians are in the triumphal entry that follows Jesus, we're the prisoners of war in the back. He does this in 2 Corinthians. Mocked and shamed, the ones, the only part of the parade where you can boo and hiss and not be beheaded, right? Okay, that's where we are. But the point is here that there's a lot of ways where this doesn't fit. In fact, what is so striking, what is so unique about the king in Zechariah chapter 9? that he comes humbly mounted upon a colt, upon a foal of a donkey. Jesus doesn't come here in royal garments. In fact, we find out five days here from here, he, he just has the one rope. He doesn't own very much. 
He comes intentionally on a donkey. The message he sends is one of humility. His procession is not, you know, the who's who of society. It's not the powerful. It's just a jumble, ragtag group of Galileans. In fact, what's supposed to happen next is Jesus is supposed to ride into Jerusalem and he's supposed to be enthroned and celebrated. This moment is so passing that it's over by the end of the day. Look at verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. He comes in and by the time he gets to the temple, he's alone. And he looks around and he watches and nobody opens their home in Jerusalem. Nobody welcomes Jesus. He goes back to the place he started the day at, back to Bethany. He rides the donkey into Jerusalem and he leaves the following night. It's different than we would expect. And it's not just those reasons because remember, Jesus has been talking about this day for weeks, maybe for months. Ever since Mark chapter 10, Jesus has been telling his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, and he's been telling them what to expect. And what did they expect when we look over those chapters? The disciples expect just what I said, that Jesus really is the Messiah. When he comes in Jerusalem, he sets up his throne, he flexes his muscles, the Roman Empire is gone, and they get to rule and reign by his side. And constantly Jesus has been going, no, I'm not headed to a throne, but a cross. No, I'm not going to be crowned with silver and gold, but with thorns. No, I'm not moving towards enthronement, but my death. And they don't get that at all. And the truth is, that's different than we usually expect from a king, is it not? And honestly, this is something you're going to have to wrestle with yourself. Many of us would settle for, especially on the hard days, that type of king, the powerful type of king, the one who comes in and just wipes out our enemies and just sets things right. We want peace now and immediately, and we want to be there, you know, crowned in royalty, but that's not King Jesus, at least not yet. He comes humble. Remember, this is Jesus who owns everything. Remember, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, is how the gospel opens. Remember that this is Jesus who made the world to whom the whole world belongs, to whom there's nothing in the universe that he can't lay a finger on and say mine. And he comes humbly. In fact, consider what was said in the last chapter. Jesus said that he did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. This is not your usual kingship, but you're going, to have, you're going to have to find room, find recognition for this to understand how different it is. I love the words of C.S. Lewis. Actually, now that I think about it, it might be Charles Spurgeon. But one of them pointed out that Jesus stooped to conquer. That's what this is. Rides, on hum, rides in humbly on a donkey states, I am the king, but also defines the nature of his kingship, not with a sword. But he comes in humbly. And the thing is,
For me, this changes the entire game. It makes it hard to settle for our normal paradigms. It makes us recognize that we need to fill out the picture of who Jesus is. Jesus owns everything, has a right for everything, like it says in Genesis 49. He's the one who has the full right of authority. And yet he comes, and his purpose is to willingly lay it down, to submit to the people he came to save, to surrender to the authorities, to stand before Pilate and say nothing in his own defense, to be unjustly tried and not defend himself, to die. The thing is, Jesus isn't just king, he's the crucified king. And when we get that, when we understand that, then it takes the teeth out of our surrender. This is what Paul says in the book of Romans. He says, if God sent his son to die in our place, why would he not freely give us all good things? If Jesus is this type of a king who comes humbly instead of making demands, who comes to serve instead of be served, who comes to fulfill the demands on our lives instead of make demands, why wouldn't we serve him? Why wouldn't we surrender all things? Why wouldn't we bow down fully and, like these people here, lay everything we have before Jesus? There's a double foolishness to not surrendering to Jesus. The first one we get in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot in vain? The nations, that's not just kings of countries. That's you. That's us. Why do we resist Jesus' authority so much, it says? And what it says is God laughs at that reality. Jesus is and will be king. But there's a second foolishness which is that we're all longing for a king like Jesus. One who is not just wise and powerful, but so visibly and tangibly loving. How do you know that Jesus has your best interest in mind? It's because he doesn't just ride into Jerusalem. He marches with a cross on his shoulders up Calvary. He takes, as Isaiah says, your sin upon his shoulders. He takes your full rebellion against that authority and he bears the full weight of it and then freely forgives it and doesn't just say, now you can work for me. He says, why don't you be my child? Why don't you be part of my family? Come, participate, enjoy the inheritance with me. All that I have received from the Father, I share with you. There's a foolishness in the inevitability of who Jesus is, but there's a much deeper foolishness in not surrendering fully to the character of Christ. That he's not just the Messiah, but this type of Messiah. There's one last thing I want to point out to you today. The one last thing that's surprising about this is when Jesus comes in, he comes to the temple. 
And what we would expect here, and, and this is how it starts, Jesus does something that's visible, that's public. You would expect what he's doing here is to be seen. But verse 11, he just comes to the temple and he looks around and he goes home. Now there is a day coming where the Bible tells us that every eye will see Jesus Christ. But here, he comes to see, not to be seen. And it's super weird, isn't it? It just says that he looked around. What is he, a tourist? Jesus has been to Jerusalem many times before this. He's familiar with the temple. Tomorrow, he's going to come back and look at what's going to happen. Look at the verse, uh, uh, verse 15, okay? And he came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple and overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Do you see the way Mark tells this? That Jesus walks right in and the first thing on his agenda is the overturning of tables, is the driving out of these things. Where did he get these impressions? Where did he come to these conclusions? When Matthew tells us that he sat down and knit himself a whip of cords, when did he do that? Overnight, in Bethany. Here's the point. Jesus comes not to, not to be seen, but to see. He comes to the very heart of Israel's worship, the very center of Jerusalem, the temple, and he looks. Here's the thing. One of the titles the Bible gives God is the searcher of hearts. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's coming in to observe, to see. He sees with full comprehension. He understands everything that's there. Jerusalem and the Jews, they're fully exposed before Jesus here. And here's the thing. A confrontation with Jesus, an encounter with Jesus, whether for the first time or again, is always exposing. When Jesus comes humbly, he's rejected. And that's the last piece that the Jews didn't get about the Messiah. They thought they'd be playing for the same team. And yet they become the enemies of the Messiah. One of the reasons, again, that the religious leaders respond so horribly is right here because their entire hypocrisy, their entire selfishness is not just exposed to them, but spilled out in front of everyone. If you want to go, how does Jesus feel about how religion is going in Jerusalem, they get a poor grade, right? You know those grade letters in the windows of restaurants? Jesus just slaps a big fat F on the temple. But I want to suggest to you this morning that right now, if you just settle for asking the question, do I see Jesus? It's significant, it's valuable, it's important. We spent all morning talking about it. But there's a deeper question that you need to deal with, which is the fact that Jesus sees. Your life lays fully exposed to him this morning. And that's not all scary. Some of it's tremendously good because it means your secret suffering, Jesus knows. It means the level of your hardships are hung appropriately in the balance. When Jesus measures, he measures justly. Not just from externals, but as it says about God choosing David, the Lord knows the heart. 
But it also means that whatever you present to other people, you're not fooling Jesus. Whatever you seek to express to other people, whatever you seek to hide, it does not remain hidden. And one of the reasons Jesus comes into life is to look around. He has that same option today. He's using it right here, right now. We have that phrase we use in modern English to take inventory. I think that's what we all need to do this morning. What I would suggest to you is that as much as we might think this morning it's Jesus who's being tested, as much as we might think, well, I need to come to a conclusion on who Jesus is, the thing about Jesus is he is, he is the tester. He is the one who exposes the reality of the heart. The way that you react to Jesus, that is Jesus exposing who you really are. And if you're a Christian here this morning, there are still places where that reaction is what the New Testament calls the old man. Where your response to Jesus' enthronement is, nope, mine. Nope, not this. I need to keep in control here. No, nope, this belongs to me, Jesus. These other things, I'm fine with you having. Take them, but this is mine. And the beauty is, the beauty is that when Jesus rides in, knowing what he's going to find in the temple, knowing that he's going to be rejected and killed by his own people who had the entire script of expectation laid out before them, the amazing thing is he's weeping, the Gospel of Luke tells us. He says, Jerusalem, how long I've desired to gather you like a hen does its chicks, but you were unwilling. And the truth is, this deep exposure of Israel's failure, their own rejection of the Messiah, this is part of what brings the nation to Jesus in the book of Acts. As Peter stands up and he says, what you have done by wicked hands, talking about the next week we're about to read about, he says, was also the foreordained plan of God. And they're cut to the heart and they go, what must we do? And he says, repent and believe in Jesus. In other words, it's already been done for you. It's already been provided. It's already been established. This exposure that I'm talking about is not the exposure of shame that comes from a fourth grade bully when he finds out your secrets. It's the exposure of a doctor who says, yeah, see, look at the x-rays. We got work to do. Now let's get healing. Again, I think we swing through this tension of Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Savior, but it's got to keep circling. It's got to keep going. It's got to go deeper. And the place that we sometimes miss is Jesus who sees. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray boldly and even with a little bit of fear and trembling and invite you into the temple of our own hearts this morning to come and to look around and to see. We want to recognize, Lord, that our hearts, every ounce of our will, of our desires, of our fear, it's all subject to you. You are the Messiah, you are the King. And Lord, there's certain places in our life, even this morning, where we are just tight-fisted and we won't let go. But nothing loosens a tight fist like the love of Christ.
like the free and available forgiveness, like the fact that you stoop to conquer, like your tremendous and utter and inexplicable humility, like the fact that God is love, and the fact that it, for us as Christians, the last time you brought us to the cross, the first time you brought us to the cross, that was a place of forgiveness. It was a place of healing. And so we can come to morning, this morning and we can surrender again and afresh, not just knowing that what you demand is your right, but that what you demand is for our well-being, for our good, for our wholeness. Enter in. Lay your finger where you need to lay your finger, if it, even if it's painful, Lord. We pray like the psalmist, search me and know my heart, O God, and see if there's any wrong thing in me. And we pray, Lord, that you wouldn't just find in our hearts a temporary rejoicing, a laying down of our cloaks and the swinging of palm trees and a save now that dissipates, but one that is constantly relived. I pray, Lord, that every ride into our hearts would be triumphant. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we continue in worship this morning, as we respond to who God is, keep those two realities in mind. Keep those two pieces in mind that we praise the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who has all the authority and all the power and also that the one we praise used that power to bring about our salvation, to lay it down and willingly offer what we needed so that we could be, again, not just his subjects, but his children. Um, if you're a Christian this morning during worship, feel free to come forward and partake of communion. And remember that when we partake of communion, not only are we remembering Christ's sacrifice, but 1 Corinthians tells us that we de declare Jesus's death until he returns. In other words, there's a similarity between partaking communion and a pledge of allegiance. It's a re-signifying and a re-sealing of Jesus as Lord in your life, identifying with him, surrendering to him. And so let it be that this morning. And if you're not a Christian this morning, don't worry about partaking of communion, an external reality without the internal truth. Again, Jesus sees, Jesus knows, we don't need to see anything from you either. You're welcome here just as you are to hear about, to seek to understand, to explore Christianity, to get to know Jesus. You're welcome as you are. But I would encourage you not to leave this time merely for other people. And I would just suggest one really simple thing, which is this, is according to the New Testament, the problem with your relationship with God is not that he's hiding from you, but that you are lost. It's not that you need to go and find God, but that you need to allow God to come and find you. And one of the ways that you can preemptively or even uh, in a testing way, hypothetically surrender to Jesus is to be open to that. To say, Jesus, if you really are real, help me. Hosanna, save now. And I believe with all confidence that that is a prayer that God answers. Let's go ahead and take some time and respond together.
heart.